It's Monday, November 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House has passed President Biden's $1.7 trillion Build Back Better plan, and it will now move on to the Senate, where it will most likely see some changes before it gets voted on. The Senate is aiming for a vote before Christmas. And while it passed along party lines, everyone came out with a win as progressives will get to expand the social safety net, moderates got the CBO score they wanted, and even House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy drew praise from Donald Trump for his eight-hour speech delaying the vote. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this and how the U.S. is spending billions on COVID treatments other than vaccines. Next, Pfizer recently struck a licensing deal with the medical patents pool which in turn can strike deals with other manufacturers to make generic versions of its COVID antiviral pill for poorer countries. But when it comes to its mRNA vaccine, Pfizer has not been so willing to share the recipe. They stand to make $36 billion in revenue this year and have said that they will increase their shipments to poor countries at adjusted prices. Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News, joins us for the fight over profits and the lopsided global supply of vaccines. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We'd like to finish the BBB bill with this provision in it by Christmas. We're in very good shape to get 50 votes. We have to make sure, but I think we're in good shape here. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the big news from Friday. Uh, the House did pass Biden's Build Back Better plan. It came in at just uh, about $1.7 trillion. It passed 220 to 213 with one Democrat voting with Republicans. It's going to move on to the Senate now, and they want to have a vote by Christmas, it seems like. It's going to take some time now in the Senate, and we don't expect the bill to look like it does now by the time the Senate votes on it. We know that the House members probably got a little ambitious with some of it, particularly the pieces like immigration that have thus far, the Senate parliamentarian have said, don't qualify to be passed through the Senate process that they're using. And we also might see some changes to things like paid family leave. Yeah, for now, the bill does have a uh, monthly cash payments of $300 per child to to families. Universal pre-K has, a, I think, about $550 billion for climate change. They're, and we talked about this before, they're, they want to pay for it by increasing taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Your colleague Sahil Kapoor wrote a, an interesting article about how everybody was kind of able to take a victory lap. Progressives, obviously, you know, passing the bill that they wanted. Centrist Democrats, they got what they wanted in that CBO score. And then House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he delivered an eight hour and 32 minute speech that delayed the, the vote initially. Um, but, you know, just kind of railing against Biden, the one party rule, all that stuff. And he got uh, public praise from Donald Trump, which is yeah. if you're Kevin McCarthy, uh, it's pretty good currency for you within the Republican Party. But you're right. It did feel like everyone got what they wanted at the end of the day. Progressives in the Democratic Party had been very concerned that the moderates were going to screw them over at some point and not pass the bill. But it passed it passed many of their top priorities in it. Moderates say it was much smaller and had less of the things that they didn't want to see in the bill. So they were happy about it. And then Republicans got to have their talking point. They're not going to stop talking about it between now and next year's midterm elections. Yeah, the obviously the price tag is something that they don't want to do. They don't want to increase the taxes either. So, um, you know, we'll see how that all plays out. As we mentioned, it's got to go to the Senate and it will probably change the way it looks and maybe the price tag even as well. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. 
President Biden is spending billions of dollars on these other COVID treatments aside from the vaccines, these pills made by Pfizer and Merck, monoclonal antibodies, all this stuff. Uh, we still have about one in five Americans that aren't vaccinated. So they're going big on all these alternative treatments as well. That's right. You know, when you look back at January and February, when the administration was announcing that they had spent $25 billion on vaccines, it seemed like we were a long way from where we are now, where they're announcing spending $10 billion on these anti-COVID treatments, these new pills that they expect to be available this fall and winter, where if you get the virus, if you catch it within the first day or so of symptoms, you can take a pill and it's kind of like Tamiflu. It makes it less severe. And the research has said prevents hospitalizations and deaths. And so this is really a sign from the administration that they're not ready to throw their hands up and give up. They realize there's going to be millions of people that they that don't get vaccinated, that still get this virus. That first one you mentioned, that Pfizer pill, they're buying 10 million courses of it. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of courses of the of this treatment. I, I haven't seen any polling with regards to these new treatments or anything, but we know how politicized the vaccines became. Has there been any indication that, you know, these other treatments, these pills might be falling into that same category? You know, it's a little funny when we see that people say they don't trust the vaccine. They don't want to take it because it's new. <laughs> then they've embraced these same people, the treatments, the monoclonal antibodies. So there isn't a sign yet that these folks are going to be unwilling to take something once they're sick. So it looks like they, they should be available for people. And hopefully people who get it will take them because we want people to get better if yeah. they catch the virus. The last thing I want to talk about briefly is uh, President Biden. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about his health, mental fitness. There were some polls out regarding that. If he's going to run in 2024, we just heard uh, that I guess he's in his inner circle. He's been telling people that he is planning on running for 2024. Um, what are we hearing on this front? So we did see the president get a physical on Friday. He got a rather clean bill of health, had a couple of things, some heartburn, some issues. We remember he hurt his leg last year chasing after his dog, uh, still having some issues with his legs. Um, but you're right, telling uh, folks telling the Washington Post that he is telling donors and people close to him that he intends to run for re-election. Um, he has hinted as such in the past. I think Democrats and the party are still operating under the assumption that he runs for re-election. And that would mean if he changed his mind, uh, candidates would have a hard time. They have to have act really quickly to set up a campaign right. um, to try to, to run themselves. But right now, I think the Democratic Party, at least until we get to the midterms and someone says otherwise, is operating under the assumption that he runs. Yeah, and we've seen the sagging poll numbers for President Biden. Uh, you know, there's concern in the Democratic Party uh, what this lag can mean for them. Uh, obviously, we're expecting the midterms not to go so well for them right now. These are just the big questions swirling, uh, swirling around is, you know, does he have enough political power to sustain that long? Yeah. And look, if you're a Democrat who wants to run for president, uh, you're probably young. Uh, you know that no matter what he does, you can run in 2028, um, which doesn't seem that far away. Uh, so I think that we're seeing a lot of people um, try to weigh those decisions and, and work on that timeline as well. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Or just do more licensed manufacturing deals with a wider array of producers. So I think you might 
conclude by that, that they perhaps have learned their lesson from the, the past year, that they need to be more inclusive and perhaps have decided to take a different approach with the COVID pill. Joining us now is Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you. There's been a lot of interesting news with Pfizer very recently. One of the things that popped out was that they just signed a deal with a UN-backed group to allow other manufacturers to make its experimental COVID-19 pill. There's a lot of hope behind this that it would bring access to this medicine to a large part of the world. They're going to be working with the medicines patent pool, which would let generic drug companies produce this pill for use in a bunch of different countries. Great news. On the other side of things, when we talk about the actual vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine with BioNTech that they have, that is a little trickier. They are holding that a little closer to the chest and don't really want to let others know that secret recipe and allow others to manufacture the vaccine. Um, they stand to make $36 billion off of that this year. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with this. Yeah, it's really interesting that Pfizer has decided to take this different approach with its COVID pill than it's taken with the vaccine. You know, we've seen from the past year, ever since they read out their results from their COVID vaccine trial, they have kept a tight grip on the vaccine manufacturing process, keeping most of it in-house through facilities and their factories in uh, the United States, as well as in Belgium. And they really resisted calls to either do licensed manufacturing deals with other vaccine manufacturers around the world, particularly in low-income countries like Africa or Asia. And they have uh, opposed this proposal at um, the World Trade Organization to waive intellectual property protections on COVID vaccines and therapeutics. And, you know, they've really just sort of resisted all the calls to either share the technology or just do more licensed manufacturing deals with a wider array of producers. So I think you might conclude by that, that they perhaps have learned their lesson from the, the past year, that they need to be more inclusive and perhaps have decided to take a different approach with the COVID pill. Now, it could be that the COVID pill is potentially easier to produce. Vaccines are very complicated. There's something like 286 components from 19 countries that go into the COVID vaccine that Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech make. I think the COVID pill is probably a simpler product to outsource to generic producers. That may be one factor at play. Yeah. And until now, you know, we, we always knew it was going to be that race to buy up as many doses as you can. And, and we saw that with very much with all the higher income countries. And, and that's exactly how it played out for pretty much every vaccine. They, Pfizer, for their part, has started to make more shipments to poor countries, but they're really in dire need of more doses. I think uh, from the article, you know, Africa, only 6% of the people there are fully inoculated as of early November. I mean, that's almost nothing right there. So I know Pfizer is starting to increase those shipments, but that's why people are asking for, you know, a waiver of the intellectual property. Maybe they can start manufacturing in different places. I know they were trying to set up a hub in Africa as well, just to help with all of this. Right. The medicines patent pool, the group, the UN-backed group that co that Pfizer says it will cooperate with on the COVID pill, they're sponsoring this mRNA vaccine manufacturing hub in South Africa, but haven't gotten much feedback from any of the mRNA producers on that. 
So yeah, there's this huge push to try to get more vaccines out. I mean, Pfizer did this big deal with the U.S. government after a huge amount of pressure on them to do more, including the U.S. backing this IP waiver proposal at the WTO, which really shocked the world that the U.S., a staunch supporter of intellectual property protections, would back something like that. It was a real gut punch to the pharmaceutical industry. So after that, Pfizer did this big deal for a billion doses, selling those at cost to the U.S. government, and the U.S. government would in turn turn around and donate those to low and middle income countries. But however, only about 200 million of those donated doses will ship by the end of this year. So the vast majority of that supply will only arrive middle of next year, possibly towards the end. You know, the production is very much prioritized to paying customers, mostly in wealthy countries who are rolling out these booster campaigns. And that's an interesting part of it too, because their CEO basically was talking about how they sell this. And they say that they do sell it on a sliding scale, right? So higher income countries get it at one price. They slash that price a little bit more for middle income countries. And for poorer countries, they're basically selling it at cost. And part of their argument for Pfizer, they say, well, Let's say we do give up the IP. Let's say we do let other people manufacture it. For them to ramp up any type of production is going to take them a year to 18 months to do all of that. In the meantime, they're saying, we're manufacturing this at a, at a fast pace. We're going to meet all those numbers by that time anyways. Part of me does agree with that. And I see the point that it's, it's, we're pretty late in the game at this point to be trying to start up new manufacturing sites that will make a dent in the pandemic as it stands now. It will take maybe not 18 months. Look, Pfizer stood up its own manufacturing capacity much more quickly, you know, within nine months, um, possibly even shorter. And they know a lot more about the manufacturing process now than they did a year ago. So we're in a different world now. And the real question is, we don't know if we're going to, the world is going to need an annual booster shot we just don't know at this point. So we could be constantly playing catch up of needing 7 billion doses potentially a year to try to get the vast majority of the population with immunity to keep the pandemic at bay and, and, and push it towards an endemic virus that is still there, but not shutting down economies. Yeah. And that's an interesting. You're right. We don't know right now, but it seems like it's heading that way. We've seen studies saying that the effectiveness of the vaccines of all of them really start waning after a period of time. So, you know, the need for boosters might be a more commonplace thing. Uh, One of the interesting things, too, that you wrote about is just making contracts with other countries and Pfizer asking for, you know, the waiving of certain liabilities and all that. Can you talk to that, uh, speak to that a little bit? Because that was really interesting. It it said that uh, in some cases, deals were starting to fall apart because of that. Yeah, this was really fascinating and incredibly difficult to report out. It was so secretive. Pfizer asked for uh, non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality agreements with all the countries that it was doing manufacturing deals with. So some of the contracts leaked out. We got reports from some of the countries that were upset with Pfizer's demands for complete indemnity. You know, they wanted protection against all liabilities associated with the vaccine, including negligence, which some for some countries that felt like a step too far. Now, you're dealing with legal systems in different countries that vary widely. So how do you interpret what, quote unquote, negligence means? But, you know, they did not want to be held 
liable for mistakes made in the manufacturing process or doses that perhaps spoiled along the way. And to some extent, you can understand that. They're rushing. We're in the middle of a, a, a pandemic. It's, a, it's an emergency. You don't want to necessarily have pharmaceutical companies not step up to the plate because they're worried that they might be held liable because they're rushing and you know mistakes do happen. But this did hold up negotiations in a number of countries, South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, you know, who push back on the kind of demands that Pfizer made, including in some cases, they were asking to put up collateral. How are you going to pay for us, pay for any claims related to the vaccine if something should go wrong? That includes, you know, adverse events from, you know, individuals who and we know the vaccines are you know, very safe, but there are occasionally in, is cases where, you know, someone reacts badly and there, there's compensation programs set up in the United States to deal with that. They wanted to replicate those kind of protections worldwide. And most countries didn't have a system set up for that, right. uh, a sort of vaccine compensation scheme. And that's what they were trying to replicate. So they had huge sway over, you know, new laws being written in these countries to set up these sort of schemes. And, you know, that that caused delays. We're talking about Pfizer and, you know, they've had nothing but firsts in a lot of this. You can call them probably the the fl- the global front runner in this covid vaccine race. How have other vaccine makers fared in all this and, and sharing this? And, we, you know, what we're talking about getting as many people across the world now access to these vaccines, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, some other big players in this. How have they fared with all this and, and trying to share their recipes for this? Right. So Moderna, for one, a small biotech company that had never produced a licensed drug before and, you know, produced this fantastic mRNA vaccine, but they employed about a thousand people. They are a tiny company that is, um, it was kind of incredible that they stood up the amount of manufacturing that they did, given how small they are. You know, they were aiming for a billion doses by the end of this year. So far, they've supplied a little over you know, 550 million, I believe, off the top of my head. I think they may fall slightly short of their target of a billion doses by the end of the year. And, you know, they, when this WTO proposal to waive IP rights came up, they said, look, we're not going to enforce our, our patents um, during the pandemic. They were sort of a bit hands off. It was, you know, it's hard to replicate these vaccines. So that was an easy thing to say. But, um, you know, and they were charging quite high prices. On the flip side, you have AstraZeneca, which promised their vaccine would be not for profit for the world and did these licensed manufacturing deals, including with the world's largest vaccine manufacturer in India, the Serum Institute. And the vast majority of their doses, they've produced about the same amount as Pfizer, 2 billion, just over 2 billion. Vast majority of their doses have gone to low and middle income countries. A lot, a big chunk of that is because of India, which threw up its the gates and refused to allow the vaccines produced in India to leave the country. Uh, as as you recall, they had a, hu- a terrible time with the pandemic, with a wave of COVID deaths. And then they've recently said that they will start charging a bit more to high-income countries. They've abandoned that that not-for-profit pledge, which was a a sad but probably inevitable move, uh, given that they had had so many problems with the vaccine rollout and gotten such bad press for a number of different reasons. Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.